we can actually catch some of what they've done. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand up, folks, and just have a stretch and say hello to someone, maybe shake a hand, say something nice about them. It's a bit glary. All right, take a seat, folks. Well, what a great day, eh? Isn't it cool to have so many folk named as being over 60 years here in the church? Um, what, a, what a tremendous thing to be able to say that. Um, God bless each one of you. It's tremendous. We're focusing on the Dodgers, but we're thinking of all of you guys and girls. That's a marvelous thing. Joan, are you here today? Hiya, Joan. Well done. 83 years. <laughs> Living legacy, which is really cool. Hey, I'm starting a new series um, today, and uh, uh, we're going to break this series uh, partway through with another series that I want to do, a shorter one as well. I'm really excited about the I'm excited about this series, I'm really excited about this series, but I'm also planning the third series that we're doing at the beginning of next year, and I can't wait to be able to preach that series, but I'm backing up to this, this one, um, which, which is, is just so incredibly relevant to us. Didn't Mike do an amazing job this morning in leading us? You know, something, I, something just settled over me that I think is kind of a prophetic thing over me with regards to that. I felt God saying that, that um, he's hovering over our land and he's looking for people that are ready. He's hovering over our land and he didn't, it's not called Aotearoa for no reason. He's hovering over our land and looking for people that are ready because he's going to do something that will involve the church and he's looking for Christians that, that understand the, the times and the days like the sons of Korah did in their day. And they knew what needed to actually take place. So I think that's just, just stunning. And um, I hope you're one of those people. I hope I'm one of those people too. This new series is actually on identity. It's, it's looking at the question, who am I? And it's looking specifically at the thought of having your identity stolen, identity theft. On the next slide, you might identify with this. It says, how could someone steal my identity when I still haven't figured out who I really am? <laughs> but it's a question that every single person on the planet asks. And the reason is that every person who's been born on this planet ever has been affected by an incident that happened to the very first human beings who were Adam and Eve, that's right. And what the theologians call the fall. Fall do, do, doesn't sound very much, it sounds like a bit of a trip, but it's, it's such a big, big, huge thing. It's affected us in ways that are way beyond we would ever have imagined. 
Let me pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman. And, and theologians or scholars um, view this in that Satan entered into, the, into an animal and, and got himself into the actual garden. And then he said this, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the, wooden re- the woman replied. The, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. <gasps> you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give to her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, folks, that is the most significant moment in my mind until Jesus Christ arrived on the earth that the planet has ever seen. That moment was the most significant moment, certainly one of the top two, but probably the most significant moment that the planet has ever seen because the effects of that have been absolutely massive. The consequence for every individual, the consequence for countries that were eventually formed, the consequence for the creation or the planet itself has been incredibly massive. Sin entered the world and evil escalated within a generation. There was murder, war, rape, selfishness, pain, greed, you name it, was unleashed because a woman took something she wasn't, she'd got and said, don't eat, uh, eat this and she did. Adam and Eve had no idea what they were unleashing upon the, upon the globe on that day. They were seeking the wisdom to be like gods. Probably in the way Satan phrased it, it was exactly the same temptation that he'd faced. He wanted to be God. And she was thinking, well, maybe I could be God. But the ironic thing is that they were already created like God. They were created in his image. And that was the moment that humanity's identity as sons and daughters of God got stolen. And that means our identity got stolen at that same point. You know, we're all pretty familiar with identity theft. No one wants to have it happen to them. If you're traveling, you buy little covers to put all your cards in because the chip details can be scanned and someone can have a scanner and walk past you and suddenly they've got all your details. So you buy these little cards when you're traveling and that you, you, you're really careful not to leave Bluetooth on when you're in an airport or somewhere because someone could, could uh, uh, zero into your phone and they could get information that they're not supposed to, to have. You know, I've watched friends who are married um, uh, get their identity stolen. The husband's identity was stolen. And bills started to appear on his um, bank statements. And then his Facebook was used, and it appeared that he was stalking another woman. And it was so hard for him to prove to his wife that this was not him doing this. And it was so hard for her to know 
Who is my husband? Does he have another identity? Does he have a double life? You see, suddenly Adam and Eve's identities as loved sons and daughters was gone. And since then, we've all had two problems. Well, we've had a few more than two. We've had two really serious ones. We're unsure of who we are. And then secondly, even when someone as a Christian gets an awareness of who they are in Christ, we constantly forget. And we go back to what we know. Our old made-up identities. You see, originally God gave Adam and Eve an identity. And we find it, and and that means he gave us an identity too when he gave it to them. We find it in Genesis chapter 1. Let's just pick up those scriptures, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. See, God's Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. To be like ourselves, and they will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God made human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with, and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You know, our identity is how we actually see ourselves. And it's supposed to be an inner strength within every single one of us, that we're solid at our core. We know who we are. We're not pushed and, and, and thrust by wind and wave and circumstance. We're supposed to have a confidence, a security, an awareness, a peace, a composure because of the way God has actually said and created us and said who we are. And look at what he tells Adam and Eve. He says, first of all, you're image bearers. We're designed to reflect him. We're designed to look like him, like God himself. I don't mean physically. If I just press pause here, the really interesting thing is that um, Jesus, after his humanity here on earth, decided he would stay in the image that he had as a human being, the, the human image, because he loves us that much. But when we were first created, I don't think it necessarily means God looks like you and me. But in qualities, in attributes, we are the exact image of God. We're designed to look like him. And that means that we should be like a mirror that people can see God when they see us. When we leave a room or leave a conversation, people should go, who was that? Who was that masked man? I feel like I've, they should say things like, I feel like I've just had some heavenly wisdom downloaded into my situation. I think I've just experienced God. When you and I leave a conversation or leave a room. See, as a mirror image of God, we're designed to think God's thoughts. And he's redemptive. And he has an answer for every single question. Every single circumstance, God has an answer to it. And we're to think God-type thoughts. And we're to feel God's emotions as an image bearer. In other words, we're to feel the love 
that he has and the care and the, and the, the joy that he has over people and over circumstances. Especially we should do that when we see people taking risks and stepping out and stepping up. We should feel, wow, look at that person. That's fantastic. But we should also feel his anger and his hatred towards injustice and oppression and the effects of sin. And it's not wrong for us to, as image bearers to see something that's totally wrong, maybe systemically wrong through our government or through society and, and the councils or some other thing that's supposed to stand for justice and it's actually dishing out injustice and we should find something rises up within us that says that shouldn't happen and I'm going to do what I can to change that circumstance because that's what God would do and then thirdly not just thinking his thoughts and feeling his emotions but doing acts of compassion just like God would do you know we can't change the world but we can make a God difference in the lives of people in our world. It's true, isn't it? You see, God's identity that he gave to us, right, to Adam and Eve and to us, is that we're loved children and we're strong and we're powerful and we're made to rule and we're made to govern. Does that put your head down so you go, oh, no? It's not rhetorical. It lifts us, doesn't it? You are made to make a difference, a God-type difference as you walk through the world, your world. You are made intelligent. You are made wise. You are made to have answers that other people can't get. You're made to make a difference because you're made in the image of God. And then we're designed to be people of relationship because the God is Trinity. He's always chatting. He's, got always, he's always got friends. He's never lonely. We're not made for loneliness. We're not made to be lone rangers either and I'm going to do this and I'm going to and I'm going to and I'm going to. No, we. God says we, you, friends, we're made for deep, accountable relationships this is, this is the image that God has given to us. This is the identity that God has given to us. You're a great person to be around. Why don't you tell the person next to you? No, I'm a great person. Say, I'm a great person. I'm a great person to be around. <laughs> then you can pay them a compliment. You're strong, you're wise, you're friendly, you're gifted. But the problem is our identity got stolen. And we're quick to forget, even when we grasp just a bit of it. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at who God says I am. But the first thing that I want to do today, and I won't take too long with it, but I want us to look at our idolatry identity. Before we can really look at what God says our identity is, we need to look at what our idolatry identity is. In other words, the identity we've made up around ourselves, because we don't really know who we are and where we fit and why we're alive and what we're supposed to do on the planet. And it's important to know what your, your idolatry identity is, so that when you catch yourself stepping out of God's, what God says about you and me, and heading back to what God would call Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. 
But you know the story in the Old Testament. They always said, come on, there's a problem. Let's go back to Egypt. We had great food there. Really? Leeks? Onions? Really? You can have shrimp. Give me some other. Steak? You can have, what are some great foods? Yeah, all of that. Some more. Some more. You can have all that, but you want to go back to Egypt. So when you find yourself heading back in your, into your identity idolatry, the identity you made up for yourself, say, hey, I don't belong there. This is who God says I am, therefore that's who I am. Is that good? You see, idolatry is something is when we put something other than God at the center of our life. And the thing, it becomes the thing that we worship. And some scholars um, see idolatry as the most common sin in the Bible because everyone's always putting something else in the middle and making that what their life is all about. And they start to actually worship it. Even atheists are actually worshipers. Worship, maybe they're worshiping atheism. But they're worshiping, setting the course of their life to prove something and to be something and to be somebody. They're actually worshiping, just as Christians worship. Everyone puts something at the center of their life and then goes after it. You know, for non-Christians, who usually have a bias against Jesus Christ... Many other things come into the center or the goal or the focus of their lives. And I want to give you just five things today. There are obviously more than that, but these will be the five main things. And maybe you'll find yourself in one of these areas or several of these areas that have made up your idol or idolatry identity. The first one is things, the things that we can have, the stuff, the toys in our life. You know the saying, he who has the most toys wins. That's, this is this idolatry identity. He or she who have the most toys wins. And, and what we own and what we drive and what we wear are the things that make up our idolatry identity. And, and it's good to dress well and it's good to drive something nice, but it's very easy to step over the life where, line where it becomes all about what we wear and what we drive and what our house looks like. Is that true? There is nothing wrong with ni looking nice, but if it becomes our image, we are heading down into making that the idol in our lives. And the examples are endless in this. Vehicles, homes, the phone you have, the technology you brought around yourself, the jewelry that you have, the clothes that you wear, that can become all important rather than just a tool that we use. And consumerism and materialism in the Western world is now many people's religion, and they worship in the local mall as often as they can. <laughs> and everywhere we turn, there's advertising telling us to buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people that we don't know. And if possessions, possessions define your identity, then the brand name on your clothes and the make of your car are absolutely vital to you. And consumerism is driven by the desire to gain status and prestige with the people that we're impressing. And we do that by conspicuous displays of what we're eating. How many people can't eat a meal without photographing it first and posting it somewhere up there? And if you're in some place in the world that you, you 
what wouldn't normally be like Bali, there's got to be photos of you in, the, in Bali so people know you're having this experience and what you're wearing. And it's all part of where we can come close to the line and maybe be stepping way over the line into making that our actual identity. And today, television gives us tours of the wealthiest people's homes. So we're not just competing with the Joneses, we're competing with the world super rich for what we feel we have to live in. And it results in coveting and overspending and debt. And this forces us to work harder and longer and spend less time with the people that we love. And when consumerism is the source of our identity, the stuff we own actually ends up owning us. And it's, again, it's not a sin to have nice things. But when it becomes our identity, we become idolaters. The second is to have the idolatry of what we do. This is really common for all of us. I can see big portions of my life when this has been something that I've been worshipping at. Many people define themselves by what they do. You know, the common question at parties is, so what job are you in? What do you do for a living? And depending on what you can say back, you have, are given a certain rank of status. Now, that's not true in Christchurch, because the first question in Christchurch is, what church did you come on? it could be, but it's usually shaped in the form of what school did you go to? And it's another form of status bearing which relates back to, were you on the fourth ship? You know, ship number five and six, ship numbers one to four, I believe, arrived before December. Ship number five, six, and seven arrived January, February, March, I believe. Someone can check me on this. Why are the first four held so high in this city? It's another form of idolatry. I'm, I've got great descendants. I've got wealth on my side. I go to certain schools. Now, there's no doubt that we're supposed to work. Everything requires work. Our job requires work. Our parenting requires work. Our chores that we have to do around home require work. Our relationships require work. Our families require work. And we're expected to serve at church. But if we find our identity in the work that we do, then it becomes more important to be the best at what we do and to excel and to outperform others, to demonstrate our superiority because we want to be noticed. And once you find that niche, it's easy to become overcommitted and even obsessive. And other matters like your health, what are you doing on a daily basis for health? How are you keeping yourself strong physically? How are you keeping your, your lungs and heart going well? What, what on a daily basis? Oh, I don't have time because I've got so much work to do. Health can go. Leisure can go. Your children, your children can go. How many parents, especially the men, I say that because I've, I've lived that life myself, I can't get to my son's soccer game or rugby game or, or the, um, the performance that's going on for any of the children this week because I've got a deadline that I have to get something done and I'm busy on the computer. Things that are really important can be sacrificed on the altar of doing well and looking good if what we do is our identity. 
And success in what you do can lead to a lack of compassion, even disdain for people who are struggling in life and who are hurting and are failing and are not doing as well as you or I do. And so defining our identity around what you do and how well you do it, it leads to pride. And the truth is you're not what you do, it's who you are that matters. The third really common identity idolatry is to have your identity defined by the acceptance of other people. And some have an in-group that they're trying to impress. And so long as that in-group is happy and thinks that they're cool, then they feel really good about themselves. And we are made for acceptance. And we are made for love by others. And it's really good to have other people in our lives that, that are around us. But it's a fine line to cross when others start to define whether we're acceptable and whether we're actually good and whether we're lovable. And we can so easily give other people the right to define us in our identity. And we'll run after them for approval. And you know, you can know that you've given this thing um, a place that it shouldn't have when people don't give you the approval or they out and out criticize you And the pain goes so deep, it's like debilitating. For some people, it'll get them into a a fetal position. And it's extremely dangerous to give other people the right to define us, because when they don't define us, it can lead us to mood swings way down here, and even to things that might lead to suicide. It's dangerous. God never wanted us to put our identity in what other people think about us. In fact, he's given us such a strong core that we can go against the flow when the flow's going the wrong way. But only when we start to really understand, I've been walking, I've had had jelly on the inside instead of a rock. And I need to get that rock, and that rock will come as we open up in the, in the weeks ahead of what God actually says about you and me as human beings. And then fourthly, some people put their identity in some future status, some future longing that they hope is going to happen. Uh, and, and when it happens, you know, when it happens, then I'll be okay. When I get a boyfriend, when I get a girlfriend, or when I get married, or when I get that career, or when I get that salary, then I'll be all together, they think. I'll be someone. My identity will be how it's supposed to be when that happens in the future. And people who give the future some kind of power like that are like a balloon being tossed in the wind, just blowing wherever it wants to blow. Because bad news and loss and failure and, and all of those things come to everybody. And they'll live with volatility of real highs and real lows. And God wants us to live and believe for a better future. It's not wrong to believe for these things. It's wrong to cross the line and put our identity in these things. See, the truth is, you're not going to be defined by something that happens out there in the future. You are someone now. That's what God says to us. And some people define their identity by their suffering, the fifth one. You know, everyone suffers. Would you say that to the person next to you? (laughs) Trouble, 
difficulty, financial lack, pain, sickness, losing a good job. It's called negotiating life. No one just goes step, 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 higher, higher, higher. You know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Get used to it, guys and girls. But then take heart. I've actually overcome the world, so it actually doesn't matter. But get used to the fact that the wind will blow. You will bike to work some days, and the wind's in your face. And when you bike home, the wind's still in your face because there's been a wind change. That's life. Get used to it. You will be fitter by the time you get home. And it's one of the ways you can bring health back into your daily routine is to buy a bike without an electric motor. (laughs) Or turn the electric motor off until your wife gets on it. Where was I? (laughs) Trouble in the world. But sometimes people do hit such a tragedy. And for one reason, that it just blows them out of the water. And for one reason or another, they find themselves unable to come out from that. Losing a child could be one of those sorts of things that can take you to that depth. Being raped could be one of those things that could take you to that depth. Getting cancer could be one of those things that could take you to that depth. But God wants us to become overcomers so that we are not a Christian who had had cancer. I said the wrong thing then. So that we are not a cancer survivor who is also a Christian, defined by cancer. But we are a Christian who had cancer. You know, when we find that we've based our identity on any of those things, the things we own, our job, the opinions of other people, some future fulfillment or suffering, then internally we're like jelly. People can just knock us for six. We're like an identity crisis waiting to happen. All it's going to take is for someone to criticize us or something to fall over. So who am I? Who are you? Before you were born, Adam and Eve broke your true identity of being a deeply loved son or daughter. Well, the amazing thing about Jesus Christ and the fantastic news that we're going to be looking at and just looking at sections of it piece by piece from the book of Ephesians is what was broken has already been restored back to us in Christ. And that's why in Ephesians it says this, for he chose us in him. He chose us to be in him. He placed us into him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then in verse 13 it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You know, we're used to, as Christians, the thought that Jesus Christ lives in us. We often say he lives in our heart. Often when you're leading someone to the Lord, you can say, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. He actually invades a lot more than the heart. It's it's a a term that was used in Judaism and and the Hebrew thought for, for the very inside, to the very core of who we are. 
But you know, the amazing thing that often we've not thought about and, and was brought out by, by Julie last week is that we have also been placed into him. We have been placed into the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does that mean? Well, I just want to, can I have the band come up because we really need to draw to a close. But I want to go into this in the next, in the next few weeks. But the thing that I, I, I want to give you is this to think about. The Bible says what Adam did affected all of humanity to a massive degree. But he said what, it then says what Jesus did was greater and more. It eclipsed what Adam did in the first little run round the track. And then it goes bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more. Do you think Adam and Eve knew what they were unleashing upon the world when they committed one sin? Do you think they knew that their sin would affect their kids and their grandkids? Everywhere, every race, because we all come from one pool, Adam and Eve. Every race, every human being, born broken. Did they have any idea when Eve said, I like that, I'd like to be God, and went for it? Do you think that they knew that their sin would bring murder and war and rape and greed and unleash evil upon this world that has not stopped. There are something like over a hundred wars going on around the planet at the moment. Do you think they knew that? Do you think they knew that their sin would actually affect the planet, creation, and it would cause, in the randomness of, of creation being out of order, for earthquakes to happen and tsunamis and volcanoes that were never, ever planned for this planet? So that's Adam doing something that caused what he didn't expect. But the Bible says Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and defeating all of Satan's work is greater, is bigger, does more than those puny things over there. It's going to be a real fun few weeks. Would you like to stand with us? We'd like to finish by um, singing this song that is relatively 